Well, our reading comes from Isaiah chapter 43. And as I said, we're going to focus really uh, quite specifically on one verse as our theme verse for the year, but we'll read the surrounding verses to give it a little bit of context and to help us understand what's going on. So we'll read from verse 16 onwards. And there we read, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Amen. So as I said, this verse, verse 19 of Isaiah 43 it forms our theme verse for the year. It's one that will hopefully be on our minds. We'll bring back to your mind uh, over the course of the year. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. As we come into 2020, we have much to reflect on in the year gone by. There have been so many things in 2019 and indeed across the past decade that um, have been significant events in our lives, I'm sure. Certainly in our family life, that is most definitely the case. You don't even have to go any further back than 2019 for that and our move here and our change uh, in circumstance as we've come uh, to be part of the fellowship here. We have no idea what 2020 is going to hold, even less idea what the following decade is going to hold as we look forward, and that's unsettling. It's difficult for us to not know the future, which is a shame because we never know the future. We have great um, ideas and plans. We might have some uh, thoughts as to what will come, but we have no way of knowing with absolute certainty for all that there might be things we're pretty sure will happen tomorrow. We're pretty confident the sun will rise we're pretty confident there will be another day ahead. And yet, in actual fact, there is no way for us to know with any certainty whatsoever that any of that will happen in our lives. We don't know what tomorrow brings. The Lord knows the number of our days. They're written in His book. He knows exactly how many days of life we will have on this earth. He knows when our lives will end. He knows when our circumstances will change. He knows all of that, and we don't. And it makes us feel unsettled, on edge. We need help. We need help to live with confidence facing an unknown future. But it's more than that. As Christian men and women, it's not just that we have to hope tomorrow comes and that there will be things for us to do and that we will not just cope but flourish when tomorrow comes. There is an expectation on us that we will be worshipping God, that we'll be growing as disciples, and that we'll be witnessing to Him. And we don't know what the future holds. What will it hold for our whole church together? If you think back over the last 10 years, I'm sure there have been a significant number of events in the life of this fellowship that weren't expected, that have shaped who we are here and now. But at 2010, you had no idea what was to unfold. So what do we do as a fellowship? 
looking to the future, wondering where will we be in another 10 years should the Lord decide uh, to wait that long before he returns. Again, we need help. We live in a broken world, a world which is not just ambivalent about God, but wants nothing to do with God, would actively work against God. How will we cope with that? How will we reach out to others with our faith? How will we worship together? How will our gatherings function? How... So many questions, so many things unknown. We need help. We know a couple of things from our own experience and from this passage. We know from our own experience that God has done something, not just in creating this world and creating your life, but done something significant in sending His Son to die on the cross for each one of us. He's gone through that to bring great change to us as individuals, personally. We also know that He is doing something in this world. He says that multiple times in His Word, doesn't He? That if we are all changed as individuals, the effect of that as it spreads across the rest of the world is that whole cultures and societies, whole nations are changed, and the world begins to be changed as a result. It's not the knowing of that that's our problem. It's how we live in the face of that, how we work out our part, play our part in that, that's the question that we ultimately need help with. And in this passage, God's people are reminded of a few things that I think will be helpful for us to consider as we face 2020, but indeed the whole rest of the decade. And the first is that there is a great need for newness. Now, understand what I mean by newness. I don't mean novelty. I don't mean the sort of thing that we experience in a day-to-day life where we always need something new just to keep us going. Just if you're feeling a bit down and maybe this is the way your mind works, that retail therapy is helpful for you. You're feeling a bit down, things aren't going well, so I'm just going to go and buy another pair of shoes, another pair of trainers, another jumper, a jacket, or whatever else it might be. Because the feeling that finding the perfect thing and buying it and owning it gives you helps you overcome that difficulty. I'm not talking about that kind of newness always seeking the new thing because you're kind of a bit bored and fed up with what's old. I'm not talking about that. In the passage, God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. And in the the context of this, the whole flow of Isaiah is the sad downfall of God's people, Israel. They've been given so much. They've been blessed and encouraged almost beyond measure by God. He's given them His Word. He's led them through difficult times. He's blessed them in the midst of much bigger and stronger nations. They should have been wiped out countless times, and yet God has preserved them. And yet, in spite of all of that, they've gone after other things. They've chased after other gods. They've followed other ways of living. And so they've come to this point where God has had them destroyed, and the remnant of that people carried off into exile in Babylon. They no longer live in Israel. They're no longer a nation, a people. They're just a group of folks with the same language and the same history living dispersed in this far greater empire over in the east of the world. And in that context, God says there is the need for a new thing. There is a need for transformation to come to their circumstances. They know this. They don't want to be in exile. They want to go back home to the temple that's been um, left abandoned and despoiled, to the city that's been left abandoned, to whoever wants to move into it, to the old way of life. 
in line with God's Word, that they were once free to live, but now can't because they're living in a foreign land. They know they need transformation to come to their circumstances, but God is talking about more than that. Transformation needs to come to them personally. They need to be changed because it's their fault they are where they are. They've brought about these circumstances. And God calls them to see that. That's why he begins that verse with behold. One of the things that um, I always remember from, it was actually a Greek class, it wasn't a Hebrew class, it was a Greek class, um, was a discussion about what behold really means, particularly um, in the Bible. It is more than just seeing something. To see something, if you sit and stare out the window, you'll see all sorts of things. Birds will fly across your vision, the wind will blow the trees, cars will drive by, people will go past, whatever it might be. Things will drift before your eyes, but there is no intention there of yours to see it. You're just, you're just letting your eyes see, see what drifts by. To behold something is to fix your eyes purposefully, intentionally on something or someone, some purpose, plan, whatever it might be. And God says, behold. Don't just sort of see what happens round about you. Actually focus on this thing, this truth that I am telling you. I am doing a new thing. They're in a bleak set of circumstances. They've lost everything. And God wants them to know that that situation is not going to carry on. When they abandoned God, God had already told them, look, if you do this and keep going in that way, I'm going to take things away from you. And if you repent and come back to me, I'll restore them. But if you don't and you keep walking in that way, I'll take a little bit more from you. And if this keeps going, I will take everything from you and drive you off into a land of foreign people who won't know you, won't know your ways, won't know me, and you'll be lost. And that's exactly what's happened. They didn't want God. They weren't interested in following in His way, and so God gave them what they wanted. They have their reward. They chased after every amusement going. Every God they thought would deliver what they wanted, and God gave them over to it, and they found to their horror, that that life that they so longed for is awful. It's terrible. It's dreadful. And that's quite often the way with us, isn't it? Just as human beings, never mind as Christian men and women, there are things that we desire, we crave, we long for, and we pursue them and pursue them and we pursue them. And sometimes we make those things ultimate in our life. My life would be better, would be different, would be transformed if I had that thing, that person, that job, whatever it might be. And when we get it, when we gain that thing, we suddenly realize that the life we have even with that, as wonderful as it might be, is not the life that we dreamt of. Realization dawns that that thing or that person cannot deliver everything that I've put on their shoulders to give me. Fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, support, whatever it might be. We might be given many things by God, blessed immeasurably. And I'm sure you, if you looked uh, over your life, could identify many things right now that God has blessed you with, and that's good. It's for your enjoyment, for your encouragement, and for you to use to glorify God and serve others and, and so on. That isn't the issue. The issue is, as it was with Israel, when you make the gift ultimate, 
when you pursue the end and not the one who has given it to you, the giver. That is the problem. Family can't save you. Your work can't save you. Your car, your giving to charity, whatever it might be, none of these things can truly transform your life. They'll change you, almost certainly. But they can't transform your life and make you the person that you desire to be. And the problem is for us as Christian men and women, as it was for Israel then, is that even though we know that to be true, we still live like it is. If only I had X, if only we were here, or if something difficult happens in our lives, if only that thing hadn't happened to me, life would be so much better, would be so different, and so on. But they can't satisfy. They can't bring ultimate meaning, only pursuing the one who gives the gifts. That will see us changed. Coming to him for salvation, seeking to serve and worship and fulfill and complete us. That pursuing him is what we need. We need to see the world right. And that's what God says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. There is a new thing needed here. He reveals to Israel in their exile their great need, not just for freedom, but for transformation, complete transformation for them and their circumstances. And in so doing, it gives them hope. And he does the same for us today. Paul and and 2 Corinthians draws on some of the language of Isaiah here when he talks about, um, in chapter 5, the way that we are changed by Christ. Christ comes and completely changes us as men and women. The old, Paul says, has gone. The new has come. It's like you've taken off an old suit of clothes and you've discarded them and you've put on a completely new suit of clothes. A whole new life, a whole new you exists now because of what Jesus has done. And this is what he's talking about. God has done a new thing. He has brought transformation to your life. So you can't go on living the old way. It, it doesn't work. You have a whole new way of being, a whole new way of living now. God doesn't just ask his people to see their circumstances, how awful it is without him. And so try and figure things out. Try and get things back on track. Work really hard to do well so that God will restore them. He doesn't say that. He says, see your circumstances. And then what does he say? He says, I am doing a new thing. It's not just that your situation needs to change. You can't change it. And it's easy to skip over that. But he says, see, I am doing a new thing. You can't change, but I can change you. Because I'm outside of your situation, and I'm perfect, and I'm all-powerful, and I alone know what you need to be, who you need to be, and I alone can transform you into that person. And he's willing to do it. I am doing a new thing. He's not talking about something that will happen in the future or something that might have happened in the past. He's saying to them then, I am doing it to you right now. And as we'll go on to in just a second, can't you see it? How can you miss this? Your whole life is being transformed. Surely you must see it. But Isaiah says, God is bringing about a change to his people for a purpose, for an end, for God's glory. So, we see that our situation needs to change, our circumstances need to be realized by us so that we see them correctly. We see our lives not the way that the world tells us to see it, that the things we pursue will bring lasting change and transformation to us, because they won't. They're not worth it, all that effort. Only God is. 
So what does that newness look like? God asks his people, I'm doing a new thing, and it's happening now. Can't you see it? Now, I don't know about you, but that worried me quite a lot when I read this passage. And I've read this passage many times, but it's one of those things, you know, you read something familiar and and something kind of jumps out at you and makes you think, hang on a minute. And I thought, "How, how can they not see? They've been carried away into exile. God is doing something to them in exile, and then they will be carried back from exile to their promised land. So how can they not see what's going on? But in actual fact, we see exactly the same in the New Testament. When Jesus comes, don't you? You think it's the Son of God who comes teaching with unbelievable, unparalleled authority, saying things nobody else has said, doing things nobody else has done, even in all the examples of miracles in the Bible, the miracles of Jesus go way above and beyond anything else that's seen uh, done by anybody else. He raises people from the dead, he, um, he cleanses those who uh, are, are sinful and those who are, are sick as a result of their sin and so on. He casts out demons, he, he walks on water, he manufactures bread for thousands out of just a a packed lunch of some kid who happens to be there. Astonishing things. And for all that, the people of his day can't see it. They can look right at the Son of God and not see Him. And that troubles me. It troubles me because I'm wondering what on earth I'm looking at and that I can't see. What on earth I should be able to see, but I'm so consumed in the stuff that's going on in my life with the need for, um, for, for, the, for the day-to-day stuff of life, to look after kids and, and to work hard and then to, to go and do the shopping and to sort this area of family life out and to be over here and involved in this person's life and so on. You get so consumed in all of that, good as it is, that I'm not, I'm not actually looking at what God's doing. It's one of the reasons why churches, I think, Christians as individuals, and maybe you feel that you're in this place today, I don't know, but churches as well can drift into this sort of cold, dead existence where they mouth all the right words, they do all the right things, but there's no life there. The Spirit's gone. That's how this happens. Busyness, things that need to be done are done, but the meaning, the purpose for those things being done has long been lost because we just keep doing the same things day to day, as good and as valuable as they might be. And we haven't seen what God is doing in the midst of it all. Actually, I don't know if sometimes we really care. We're so overwhelmed by the stuff of life that we just need to get through to tomorrow. The world at large is the same, isn't it? The world at large looks at our faith, the things that we say and and the things that we talk about, the, the, the gatherings that we have on Sunday, and thinks this is lunacy. It's just stupidity that you would believe a book written at the earliest 2,000 years ago, and and some of it written far further back than that. Why on earth would you believe any of this? They read God's Word and can't understand what it's on about. It can't see. It can't behold. It can see. But it can't behold. We're not paying attention. We have our vision filled with other things. But Isaiah tells his people in this whole section what this new world looks like, this new reality, this new transforming work that God is about, what it looks like. And so they should be able to see it. 
And the reason that I think people then missed it, and the reason that we miss it so often today, is that it's so huge. It's such a massive transformation that actually we, we just kind of shut down to the reality of it, and we just move on with things that we can understand. Paul uses, again, uses that language in 2 Corinthians. In fact, he talks about this kind of thing in 1 Corinthians, and indeed most of his letters. But, but this transformation that comes to you that is total, that is complete, and a transformation that doesn't just come to you that is complete, but to our whole world, such that we look to a future where there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new reality, and we point towards that now. Such will be the change in our world, or the, the place where we are. In Isaiah's day, God's people are having their faith renewed so that when they're restored to the land, they will go back to right worship. And then the whole world around them will be transformed as they prepare the way for Jesus to come, even though they don't know it and can't see it. And he comes and changes the world. Paul has this view of the world where he's no longer striving um, to, in Second Corinthians to keep out uncleanness and, and to, to be the Pharisee. If I can just keep my life perfect and holy enough, then everything will be fine. Paul gets it. He understands that the transformation that God has brought to him through Christ comes from within, and so he doesn't need to cling on to the old legalistic way of living. He can live out the faith that he now has, the, the sort of change that's been wrought in his life. That's why he uses language in, in his letters of um, working out your salvation. You're called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel with which you've been called, and, and so on. That's why he uses that kind of language. Paul's vision of himself has been changed. I now see myself the way, or at least in part, the way that God sees me, that I have been transformed, and I am therefore to go and live this out to bring transformation to those around me. But it's God's work that's been done in me. So everything I see now, everything I do, I see in light of that transformation that's come. So Paul's able in, in chains, in prison, with a back beaten black and blue, to, to sing praises to God because he sees even in that circumstance there is an opportunity to glorify God, regardless of how dire it may be. So that even if he's stoned to death, even if he's imprisoned or beaten or whatever it might be, it doesn't matter because all of it works to the glory of God. And is that how we see our lives? Is that how Israel saw its life? Well, I'm sure many of them did as God began to do a new thing in them to bring Christ to the fore. But our lives have been changed, so everything, there is no sacred and secular divide in your life. It's one of those things that we, that's just been built into us, that we can have private faith that is separate from public life. It's what our society says we should have as Christian men and women. And it's a nonsense. It can't be. There is no divide in your life. Who you are in Christ is who you are everywhere, doing everything. Everything is an opportunity to glorify God, to serve Him and bless Him. That's why we have God's Spirit always with us, working. He's not here from nine till five. And then He sort of knocks off and we go home and have our tea and then have a nice evening in and then get up and get ready for the next day serving God. That's not how it works. It's one of the greatest encouragements and discouragements to ministers that when you come towards retirement, you never retire. If anything, you just get slightly busier than you were before. Because there is no retirement. There is no finishing at 5 o'clock and going home for your tea. 
Everything is sacred. Everything is involved in the glory and in the worship of God and His service and, and building Him up. And that sounds exhausting, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I think about that and I think, that I'm just saying, I feel knackered just thinking about that. Constantly having to, to glorify God. But this is why God gives us His Word and His Spirit. Because it shapes us so that we are able to relax together with family and enjoy a meal around a table. But God is brought into all of that. God informs everything we do so that we speak to one another in a way that is shaped by God, that is Christ-like, so that we serve one another around the table in a Christ-like manner, so that we disagree, and let's face it, we're families, we all disagree with one another at some point, that we disagree in a Christ-like manner, so that when you go to work or school or college or whatever it is, you serve Him in that place in a Christ-like way. Everything is brought before Him. All of life is lived in light of this transformation that has come to us. Isaiah gets that. Paul gets that. As he thinks on this, and as he writes to the Christians and the struggling churches in the ancient world, to Corinth in particular. But do we get it? As 2020 comes, what does newness, the newness that God is working in your life look like? What is that transformation that God says He is doing in your life? He is bringing to bear. What does it look like? Are you more holy this year than you were last year? Now, I know that's a hard question to ask you. I should probably ask your family and friends. They would be giving me a much better and more accurate picture of that than you might be able to, because it's hard to look at yourself and assess yourself. I get that. That's why we're in a church together, by the way, so that we can all do that together and encourage one another that you are so much more able to handle this than you were last year. I'm so proud of you. I can't believe how well you're dealing with these circumstances. It's amazing to me to see how much you've, you've grown and, you, and you've matured in your faith so you're able to cope and so on. What does newness look like in your life in 2020 as you bring everything to, um, to Christ? Live it out. Do you not perceive it? We've got no excuse. We have God's Spirit to reveal it to us. And how far does this newness go? The answer, in short, is everywhere. That's the most astonishing thing about this passage in Isaiah 43. You could understand God coming to his people who are in exile, who are struggling, who are downcast, dejected, who just want God to help them, just lift us out of this circumstance. You could get it if God says, okay, I'm there for you, and I'll take you back home, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and that'll be fine. But that isn't what God actually says. He says, I'm doing a new thing. He says, I'm going to make a way in the wilderness. I am going to make rivers in the desert. And he repeats that language in the following verses. In fact, this whole section of Isaiah uses language like this, and it means a couple of different things. The first thing it means, I think, on a personal level, is that our lives are made... Um, comprehensible to us. The way forward is understandable. There is a wilderness before us, and just that language of wilderness resonates deeply with Israel. They've walked in a wilderness for decades before they got into the promised land in the first place. And so God says, when you were wondering and you didn't know where to go, you needed a clear way. Well, I am making a way in the wilderness you are in right now. So the way is clear. It won't be easy, but you'll know where to go. It might not be direct, it might wander about a bit, but you'll know which way to go because I will lead you on that way. He's going to make rivers in the desert. What is dry and barren will be made fruitful and abundant with life. 
as the river irrigates the desert and as the desert blooms. That is the, the picture that's being used here. And again, as individuals, we have this, uh, this encouragement that when our lives are dry and barren and we are distant, absent from God's presence as we feel, and, uh, and we feel we're going nowhere and we're just a, a shell of who we once were or who we desire to be, God says that I will make rivers run in that wilderness, in that desert. It's not up to you to, to sort of work up fruit in your life, to make yourself a fruitful and fulfilled person. I will do that. You have to see that and walk on that way through the wilderness. But I will bring that transformation. I will do it as individuals and as a fellowship together as a people. The way is clear for us as Christian men and women, as Lady Will Baptist Church in Livingston. That's it's not difficult to see the way forward. We worship God in everything we do. We serve Him. We speak to people about Him. We encourage one another. The way is hard, but it is clear. We make disciples and we glorify God. But in order to do that, we need to be made abundant with life. And so rivers, I believe, of water in the desert of our lives will come as we honor God and as we serve Him, as we see the new thing that He is doing in our day through Christ's work in our lives as individuals and as a fellowship, and as we walk in that way that's set before us, God will bring life to those people sufficient for them to complete the task that He set before them. God never asks you to do something more than you can do in His strength, by His his power. He will always work things out. He doesn't enjoy setting you tasks and watching you fail. Sometimes things are for reasons other than that we might first assume that we need to fail in order to, um, to grow, but God will always work out those things in our lives through to the end, through to their completion. And so that is how far newness goes in us, but it goes beyond that because he says in verse 20 Isaiah that wild beasts will honor me the jackals and ostriches I'll give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, drink to my chosen people, and he goes on to basically say literally the entire world is going to be transformed because you're transformed again that's a slightly scary thing to hear Livingston will be transformed because you are transformed overwhelming that's a massive task. And yet, that is what God says He will do because we are the means through which the gospel is shared and made known in word and in deed, whether it's through talking to people in the street or coming to the community fridge or um, being here on a Sunday morning or, or, or joy club or, um, or the toddlers or whatever it might be. That is how transformation comes as lives are changed. It's that idea, isn't it, of how you eat a whole elephant. You do it one bite at a time. One life at a time, and transformation comes to a people. But that is how transformation comes. That is the extent of the newness that God is bringing to bear. And it happens through an insignificant people as the world sees them, because it's not our power, our significance, our influence that God requires. It's our faithfulness, because it's His power that accomplishes all this. It is the worthiness and power of Jesus in resurrecting us from death to life that brings this transformation. And that is how not just our lives, but our world is changed in 2020 and throughout the rest of the decade. So will you pray with me that we won't rely on armies or diplomats or politicians or even world leaders to bring about transformation, but that we will rely upon the God of all the earth and his Savior who has come to bring true transformation to all people.
for 2020 and beyond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning at the beginning of a new decade, and Lord, we realize there is much to do in our own lives as individuals, as our lives combined together as a fellowship, and indeed looking at the rest of the world, the mission that you have set before us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Lord, we feel so small and inadequate to the task, and especially as we reflect over 2019, perhaps there are many encouragements there, but we look back and see many failures also. And Lord, it may lead us to have our heads down, to feel as if we are in exile far from you. And yet, Lord, our confidence is not in ourselves, for you say to your people, behold, fasten your eyes onto this reality. I am doing a new thing. And Lord, we ask that you would indeed continue to do a new thing in our lives as individual Christian men and women. Lord, reveal to us if we don't know you, if we haven't trusted in Christ, reveal to us the need for Christ, the way that we are to come to him and cast ourselves upon him that we might find salvation. Lord, I pray that you would change lives in 2020, that you would save sinners. But Lord God, we pray that you would have a, a see, a, a bigger vision for us as a fellowship and in our world. Lord, that it's not our power or might that accomplishes any of this. It is your power and your might, your worthiness, your righteousness and perfect love. And so, God, have us rely upon that to bring transformation to each one of us, but also to the world around us. Lord God, we want to see Ladywell transformed by the power of the gospel this year and on into this decade. And so we pray, here we are. Send us. Isaiah had to go with boldness at the beginning of his book and hear those words, preach until no one hears, until no one sees, until no one understands. And yet, Lord, we know that Christ comes not to obscure, but to open eyes, to unstop our ears and to soften hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that you would come, you would use us, and you would bring true transformation, true newness that lasts. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name, by whom it will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.